I'm your host, Doug Sparks, Editor-in-Chief of Merrimack Valley Magazine. Lou, can you hear me? I can. How are we doing today? I'm doing, uh, I'm doing okay. I had a, a little bit of a, a COVID scare <laughs> uh, where I was around someone who tested positive, which is why I'm in the garage. We haven't done one live from my garage in a while. Uh, and here we are, but, but no symptoms in the family. I'm feeling great. Um, so we're kind of at the end of our quarantine period. Uh, but just to be on the safe side today, we decided to to do it from the the nice uh, the nice cold garage. <laughs> That's right. No one can tell how cold it is for you out there. It's it's chilly. It's it's not as bad as it could have been. I mean, Sunday I was out here, and, and man, that was uh, that was in the teens. Yeah, you do a lot of broadcasting from your garage, and it's usually yeah. stocking cap, maybe a hoodie. Or, yeah, yeah, you know. not not today. So right. our guest today, let's dive right in. Our guest is uh, Representative Laurie Trahan. Uh, who is just uh, elected to her second term or just started her second term in the House of Representatives. Laura, can you hear me? Yes, I can, Doug. Okay, so let's uh, let's dive right in. You were there on January 6th, uh, so and, and not everybody watching will, will have known what it was like for you. So just in short, let's, let's uh, you know, explain to us what you went through on that day and what your experiences were. Yeah, so I... Um... Uh, it's it's hard even to recount that day still. Um, I wasn't in the gallery because we were sort of instructed because of COVID uh, to not go into the House gallery unless we were speaking on one of the challenges to the Electoral College, um, you know, vote counts. Uh, so I was in my office um, just days before, actually the day before I was there with my whole family, you know, my husband and my two young daughters, six and 10, we drove down on Saturday and, uh, you know, sort of celebrated the swearing into my second term. But you, did, you didn't need to read any intelligence reports uh, to know that something was changing in the air down in Washington. Uh, you know, we, of course, and fortunately made uh, the decision uh, for my husband to take my kids uh, home. Uh, they flew out on Tuesday afternoon. And I think what was just running through my mind as I was watching um, you know, folks stormed the Capitol was like, we were just on those steps with my, you know, with my two young daughters and the juxtaposition, the juxtaposition of those two images was, it made me sad, uh, of course. Um, I was alarmed as anybody was. And, and then I was angry. I mean, it was, uh, there's no question that, you know, what happened on January 6th, it was, you know, and it was an act of domestic terrorism. I mean, it was an attack on our democracy. It tried to disrupt uh, you know, the the obligation that House members have to certify our election results. And uh, I was, you know, outraged and resolved that that was still going to happen, uh, no matter how long it took to contain uh, the violence, we were still going to go back uh, to the House floor and do the job that needed to be done. And I think at that moment, the Americans needed to see that they needed to see that uh, de democracy was going to prevail, um, that this was not going to, uh, you know, take down uh, the the certification of the election and also the, um, you know, everything that the Capitol uh, stands for. So it was yeah. a full range of emotions that day. Sure. Uh, it, now time has passed. So I'm wondering, uh, in, I would say, in general, the mood as, as someone who's kind of in quarantine is, is the mood is, is uh, softened somewhat nationally. Uh, and there seems to be um, a, a, a palpable change in the air. Uh, but at the same time, I'm not experiencing sort of security issues. I'm not hearing about these you know, new details about the pipe bombs or outside the RNC and the DNC. Uh, is there any new information? Is there anything that's changing your perspective on your end? 
Uh, no, you know, I think that there's a lot at play right now. Of course, there are a lot of investigations uh, into what exactly went wrong. I mean, I think most immediately we saw a change in leadership uh, with the sergeant at arms and with the U.S. Capitol Police uh, and hearings have already started. Uh, there was a hearing yesterday uh, in terms of getting at what exactly happened. Uh, and that is going to continue. I mean, the, the security forces are going to continue. I mean, certainly I was down there for the inauguration on, uh, on the 20th and uh, it was a different place. Uh, there were thousands, I mean, 21, 22,000 National Guards men and women standing um, at posts around the Capitol complex to ensure that we could have uh, an inauguration. And so, um, and those, so many of those folks are still there and they will be for the foreseeable future. Uh, you know, I think the thing that's important, I mean, you're right to mention that as time goes by, uh, maybe folks are feeling like, um, you know, the urgency has subsided, or maybe we should be uh, moving toward, uh, you know, unity. And what I would say is you can't have unity without accountability. It doesn't matter if it's the first day of a presidency or the last. If a president commits an impeachable offense, Congress has an obligation to intervene and hold them accountable. Uh, and there's no question that Donald Trump incited a violent mob to commit an act of insurrection when they attacked the United States Capitol. And so um, we, you know, they, <laughs> they assaulted police officers. They ransacked uh, the seat of our democracy. They, they hunted down members of Congress uh, in a failed attempt to overthrow our, 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 our democratic process. And he did nothing to stop the violence in the moment. Uh, so I think it's, it's really important if we are going to heal as a country that we take this important step that the Senate has a trial uh, and that you know they, they convict him. I, I think that this is an extremely dangerous situation. It's one where not only does the president need to be held accountable, but he should never be allowed to hold the office of presidency again. Uh, and that's exactly what impeachment is there uh, to protect. What about uh, other members of the House and Senate? You've been very critical of people who've been spreading false narratives and false news and disinformation. What do you do about that? Uh, you know, it's um, there are elected officials, and I, I don't mind naming uh, folks like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, Matt Gates, uh, who is a representative from Florida. I mean, they went above and beyond uh, to do Donald Trump's bidding uh, for the past two and a half months. They they pandered to their base. They spread dangerous disinformation and flat out lies about the 2020 election, um, telling them that they needed to fight to save our country. Uh, uh, and they bear just as much responsibility for the violent insurrection as as Donald Trump does. So, um, you know, you can't have folks going to the floor of the people's house and spreading conspiracy theories and spreading lies, um, because if we're actually going to get at the media ecosystem that promotes the dissemination of these conspiracy theories and these lies, then we have to hold elected officials accountable for what they say uh, on the House floor or or at rallies and, and what they do. Um, otherwise, it's just a vicious cycle where one can claim they're reporting on the other. Uh, but you know, we're we're hearing some pretty alarming stories right now about you know some members of Congress who are alleged to have given tours to some of the very people who attacked us. Um, and it's clear that we need top to bottom investigation uh, on all of these allegations um, because you know 
members need to be held accountable. If we're going to proceed with impeaching a president uh, and there's a role that other uh, lawmakers you know, played in, in this insurrection, they need to be held responsible as well. So speaking of the media ecosystem, uh, you have been critical of Section 230 and, and people talk a lot about 230. So I want to make sure people listening are like, Section 230, what's that? Uh, Section 230 was part of the Communications Decency Act, which was uh, uh, which came out in 1996. It's the only part left. Everything else in the CDA was was ruled on unconstitutional. And it's and it seems like this not very important thing, 26 words, right? But there's this book about it called 26 Words That Created the Internet. It was it was this, it was Section 230 that allowed for Facebook and Google and Twitter and even stuff like Yelp to become what it eventually became, right? Because it protects places like Facebook from third-party content providers, people like me getting on there and saying things. So I can say something kind of crazy and outrageous. It's my fault. It's not the fault of, of Facebook. What's wrong with that? Yeah. Um, I think the, the, the truth is Section 230 is fundamentally flawed in the sense that it actually incentivizes uh, social media companies in particular to let disinformation spread like wildfire across their platforms because it increases engagement, which in the end equals increased, you know, revenue and profitability. Uh, and that's not just a problem with right-wing extremisms, that's a problem that poses a serious threat to the future of our democracy. So I do think it's time for elected officials to stop looking at this through partisan lenses and start acknowledging the serious issues that social media and big tech companies have created in their pursuit of, uh, of obscene profitability. And, you know, I'll even go one step further. I mean, certainly Section 230 gets a lot of uh, attention these days, but I've got six and 10-year-old daughters. I mean, I am alarmed that there are no guardrails in place for how their data is collected, how um, content is targeted, uh, to them, I know how powerful those algorithms are, and uh, by design, these um, these uh, these devices are meant to keep your eye eyeballs firmly locked on the device. I mean, it is. Uh, we see it play out in our homes every day. I, I'm sure I don't have to tell you, but I will give you the warning since your your kids are much younger. It is alarming to see that there are no, and we cannot leave it to the tech companies to self-govern here. We need to put up guardrails. We need to protect our children. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to digging into that. I just got onto the Energy and Commerce Committee, uh, which has direct. Uh, jurisdiction over these very issues, and uh, and you know I'm I'm as a mom, uh, as a legislator, as someone who wants you know to protect uh, free speech, but also our democratic institutions. We we have to address this immediately. Yeah, well, how how do you do this with while protecting freedom of speech? I mean, there's already some um, guardrails in place within Section uh, 230, uh, you know, like human trafficking and and copyright. And, you know, I can't just post, uh, you know, some novel that just came out a year ago on my Facebook page. Um, so I'm just wondering, how do you go about doing this and still let people in? You know, it's it's easy enough for the people who want to post pictures of cats and post pictures of kids and, and, and you know, local you know sports games. And, you know, freedom of speech is important when you're protecting dissenters. Right. And people who are kind of outliers who might be have some sort of unpopular opinion. How do you protect the people who have these, uh, you know, divisive, unpopular opinions? You know, 
It's uh, it's it's tricky. And, you know, Congress has to uh, address that the current digital and social media ecosystem uh, locks people into echo chambers where they're essentially force fed uh, disinformation that confirms their own bias. I mean, well, you bring up, I mean, I think everyone out there has, you know, that uncle or aunt, or aunt who spends uh, most of uh, their day on Facebook sharing some of the most outlandish conspiracy theories we've ever heard of, and you know, perhaps even picking fights with their the, their friends and family. But I firmly don't believe that most of these folks are trying to gaslight us. It's it's that where you know it's that they're see it's what they're seeing in their feeds is creating an entirely different, completely detached reality. And so you know, we know that's because big tech corporations have figured out how to maximize their business model, right? Their profits, they can use algorithms that keep people using their services and their devices, uh, which means that they can be targeting us with content and ads uh, for a price. Um, but the downside, of course, is that uh, a disinformation wedge is driven between the American people. And I think folks are siloed away uh, in their own reality, where all they hear is what they want. And so we got to just get to truth. You know, I'll I'll just give you a, a perfect example. I, you know, I went back to the floor of the House after the January 6th attacks, and I heard, you know, my colleague from Florida, uh, Congressman Gates, just let it leak out that it's already been reported uh, that Antifa was responsible for the, the, the siege on the Capitol. Now, that story was completely inaccurate, um, but because he said it, I was on a flight the next day uh, with so many of the people who were, you know, mobbing, excuse me, uh, storming the Capitol and just reacting to my newspaper headlines that I were that I was holding in my hands, not even as, you know, uh, as a representative. They were sort of targeting me. That was Antifa. And like you see how dangerous that can be when you walk away from truth, when you let different versions of of um, of truth sort of be validated, especially by our lawmakers. There's got to be an accounting for that. And I think it's going to come from both ends. It's not just. Uh, social media companies, but it's also, you know, the media ecosystem that supports that. Uh, and then also our lawmakers so that they're not able um, to just casually speak um, about, you know, or speak lies on the on the floor. Yeah. Once we have these guardrails in place, can we imagine what social media is going to look like? And Because there's, there's a difference in kind between say what Facebook or Twitter does and what we do as a local magazine, right? If our food critic trashes a local restaurant, we have some liability there, but we also don't have 3000 food critics posting every minute, right? Uh, do these changes change social media in a way that which unrecognizable, right? Because of, because of scalability, because of the size of the information. You know, we always knew that this was going to be the case with, you know, user generated content, right? It was always, I mean, in its very best form, uh, when you have, uh, you know, these recommendation engines or where you have relevance, uh, you know, you are surrounded by content that you like. I mean, we all have as a mom, you know, I've, I'm chased around the the internet by the, you know, the shopping cart that I haven't checked out yet. Uh, in times that's valuable uh, to folks, but at its worst, 
um, it does create uh, echo chambers where the only thing you start to see are things that confirm your own bias. And if at a young age, your approach, you're impressionable and you haven't sort of looked at things objectively and you're already being put down a rat hole, um, there's no getting out of that. And so, yes, we do have to look at data collection, data storage, who owns that data. I mean, long ago in its infancy, there was always talk about how that data should be transparent to a consumer, that they should be able to see why they're seeing certain recommendations or advertisements or content. I think it's all on the table. We have to get this right. I mean, Facebook and uh, and and Twitter and they they are um, at, on their best day uh, a, a cause for good, right? I mean, I'm connected, especially during the pandemic, with so many people that I can't physically, you know, you know, go and and visit and speak in front of and or share information with, and that is a great thing. However. Um, there is also a dark side, um, which we are also feeling right now, and it manifested in an attack on our U.S. Capitol uh, just a couple of weeks ago. So do I know exactly what form this is going to take? No. Am I committed to having exhaustive hearings so that we can get this right and we can protect our, our democracy and we can protect our children and we can just protect the future of how information is shared and what people can trust and shouldn't, you bet. Hmm. So Biden's been in office for seven days now, believe it or not. I know with the news cycle, it's, it's, it, is it longer, is it shorter? It's been seven days and there's been a flurry of executive orders. Uh, are any of these particularly exciting to you or are you as, as, um, as uh, particularly positive? You know, absolutely. I'm glad to see the executive order, uh, you know, used in this way. Certainly, there were a lot of things that we wanted to roll back. You know, personally, I wanted to see us get back to our global global leadership, uh, fighting um, the climate crisis. I wanted to see, you know, the the Muslim travel ban repealed, the transgender ban in our military. I mean, there are so many things that we just had to fix and. And this president, you know, prioritized them on day one. And look, the reason why it feels like he's been in office a lot longer uh, than um, than uh, the seven days is because there's been a flurry activ of activity coming out of the White House, which we haven't had uh, in four years. And so I do think that this is an important moment. Um, we have to, you know, we have a lot of work to do. There are so many issues confronting our country. And when you think about the moment we're living in with COVID and the importance of accelerating our vaccine distribution and our testing protocols, um, that is where this administration is, is focused. And that's where we actually have to make the most dramatic uh, transformation in these first 100 days so that we can you know, get our economy back, we can get kids back to school, we can have consumer confidence um, built back, and we can start you know, um, you know, getting to something that feels uh, familiar again. So in uh, December, the Great American Outdoors Act was passed. Uh, tremendous bipartisan support. You were just down at Minuteman National Park uh, last week, I think, uh, with the announcement. What does that mean for the Merrimack Valley and the regions around the Merrimack Valley? Uh, why is it? Why is this important? 
Well, it's important because for too long, Washington has, you know, divested from conservation efforts and we've neglected the need for maintenance upgrades at national parks across the country. I mean, it literally caused an accumulation of a $22 billion deferred maintenance backlog at our national parks. And I was at Minuteman National Park um, uh, just this week. And of course, the Lowell National Historic Park. Uh, I grew up uh, going to, but in all, there's 244 and a half million dollars, um, you know, here in uh, at parks of deferred maintenance backlog at parks here in the Commonwealth, um, 20 million here in the in the district that I represent alone. So. It was a bright light. Last summer, you know, we took up and we passed the bipartisan Great American Outdoors Act to finally change this pattern of divestment. Uh, and these are our precious public lands. These are our national parks, which have become so important, especially during uh, this pandemic, as people seek to, you know, go outside and, and get fresh air and, uh, you know, discover, in many cases, rediscover recreation that's right in their backyard. Um, but this legislation permanently and fully funds the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And that's our country's most successful conservation program that supports everything from local playgrounds to national park expansions. Uh, and it, um, it, is, it actually establishes a, uh, a restoration fund to provide critical federal investments in the National Park Service and finally close this deferred uh, maintenance log. So, you know, I was joined down at Minuteman uh, with Heather McMahon from Groundwork Lawrence, and they do unbelievable work uh, in, in the city of Lawrence. And, you know, we know uh, how important the Land and Water Conservation Fund is, especially for urban kids to get outside, to go on these, um, you know, these, these, um, uh, rail trails and these uh, these river walks. Um, it's uh, the Circuit uh, Bay Trail. Uh, you know, all of these um, uh, resources need to be preserved and maintained so that they are there for generations to come. What about the river? You you sponsored the Stop Sewage Overflow Act, uh, so you're, this is this is not a new issue for you. You've been interested in conservation issues for a long time. Um, what's next? What's next for the river in particular? Yeah, so we are, I mean, every community along the Merrimack uh, River knows just how serious combined sewage overflow is and how long it's taken for serious action to finally happen uh, to address it. I mean, the numbers are just shocking, right? There's an average of 550 million gallons uh, of, you know, raw sewage released into the Merrimack River every year. Uh, and sometimes that reaches, you know, dangerous levels on a day, uh, like when we have a lot of rain. Um, and so we've been able to work on solutions at all levels of government with incredible partners. I mean, certainly uh, in, in Congress, I get to work with uh, Representatives Moulton and Chris Pappas from uh, Manchester, Annie Custer from Nashua, uh, but also with our Merrimack Valley State Delegation. Uh, and it's clearly the organizations, your outside groups like the Merrimack River Watershed Council and the Massachusetts River Alliance, they've been unbelievable partners. Uh, but we've, you know, we we have to get um, the federal government to, sh to shift uh, from, you know, loans or thinking about this in terms of loans 
to grants. And the federal government has done this. We have made investments uh, in, you know, water infrastructure in the past. And the reality is the communities that are having the hardest trouble keeping up uh, with this, the maintenance and with the upgrading of this infrastructure are the communities that can afford it the least. And so that is why, uh, you know, we got legislation passed in the, in the House as part of our infrastructure package last July. The Senate, uh, sadly, uh, like it did with so many of the bills, they did not move on it. Um, but uh, while we weren't able to get it across the finish line last year, we know that the Biden-Harris administration plans to make uh, infrastructure uh, a top priority this year. Um, given the bipartisan agreement that we already have, this is so necessary. So, um, you know, I'm confident that, you know, we're going to uh, get uh, combined sewerage overflow, our stop sewerage overflow act into the infrastructure package, um, you know, in, in the in the first half of this year. Great. So we're almost out of time. I have a two part final question for you uh, getting into your Merrimack Valley roots. You went to Lowell High School. Yes. So that are you class of uh, 91? I Yes, I am. Did, did I get it right? OK, class 91. I'm a year older than you are. Um, so uh, my question is, when did you when did you begin to realize that you had political ambitions? Was there something going on in high school where you were like, ah, I, there's something here for me? It's you know, it. So I I was president of, you know, student government in high school and I uh, was president of National Honor Society. And certainly being involved and being engaged in my community was always a value, even in my family. You know, my father was a union iron worker and organizer. And, you know, we were, um, you know, just uh, uh, we're involved. Um, so yeah, maybe there were some, um, you know, roots that were uh, planted then. I have to say, I, I attribute a lot to just the discourse that happened in my family. I mean, at the age of 11, I had a paper route and uh, I had a very big one, but, you know, my father was very adamant about at dinner time us sitting around the table and us, you know, talking about a current event. And so reading the newspaper was required. Uh, in our house so that we could, you know, have a stimulating discussion. And sometimes those discussions lasted hours and hours, um, but never had myself running for office. Um, you know, I worked on the Hill for almost 10 years and uh, and kind of ruled it out uh, when I made the pivot to go to the private sector. Um, uh, but I have to say 2016, I think it it sparked um, something not just inside me. I mean, thousands of other women also, you know, ran. Um, but for me, it was definitely this country is going in the wrong direction. Uh, I need a we need a country that respects and uh, and elevates, uh, you know, my daughters. Uh, and I wanted to, you know, I think that was the that was the moment where getting off the sidelines became a moment of clarity for me. Yeah. So speaking of, of your daughters, this is the second part of the question, um, because everything is so divisive. Right. And because we've you know, because everything's happened, even so far this year, everything on January 6th, they get a little bit older and they say, hey, I want to go into politics. You say, I don't know. Have you considered marine biology? Like like would you encourage them to go down a path into into the political field? Yes, I would. I, look, I think public service. Uh, is a uh, is a very noble career path, um, and and it's one where we need uh, you know more people um, you know, sort of engaged, and that's at all levels of government, and it's also you know in um, 
in and around government. I mean, I look at the the activists that have, you know, really kept issues top of mind for so many communities, for people, you know, like me. And there is a whole ecosystem that I think is what this, it's what feeds this democracy, right? And so, uh, you know, certainly whatever my children decide to pursue, uh, you know, I I hope to give them good advice uh, and, you know, steer them in the right direction. But I would never, um, uh, you know, dissuade anybody from, you know, serving in government. Great. Well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you coming on the program. I'm, I'm very happy that our monitors didn't freeze. I was so worried about technical issues. But thanks for coming on the 495. Very, very much appreciated. Thank and you. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see everybody next week. <laughs> and hopefully thank you're you. not in the garage. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll be back at the radio station in Methuen. All, All right. right. You take care. Thank you. Stay All safe. right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. All right.